0: Can have a seat. Turn with me as you're being seated to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Thanks, worshiping. Man, that was awesome. Thank you, Tim. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where we'll be this morning. Verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Now our topic this morning uh, is not lawsuits. <laughs> I know it looks like that on the, sur- on the surface, uh, but that's not actually the topic that we're going to discuss. I think as we get into the cultural context, it's going to become clear that the deeper issue that Paul is diving into is greed in the church. And the lawsuits are simply a pretext for greed. Greed in the church, which the Corinthians have not addressed. Another issue of sin that they have not addressed in their midst. Now, when we think about the whole catalog of sins, right? Right? All the possible sins that people could commit. Greed is probably not the worst of them, right? I mean, there are other sins in that catalog of sins that are a lot worse than greed, right? I remember at Christmas time when our kids were babies. They didn't really get what was going on, so we just lay them on the floor and we would surround them with gifts, right? Piles of gifts around them as they laid on the floor. They didn't really know what was going on. We didn't realize until much later that we were grooming them for greed, Right? As they got a little older, you know, two years old, three years old, they started catching on what's happening here. But there were several times a year when people would just give lots of stuff to them. In particular, my sister is exceptionally generous. But what I noticed is her generosity was often not met with gratitude, but with more greed, right? Okay, where's the rest of the presents? You know, as if the pile wasn't high enough. When is the next opportunity to get a gift? When's the next birthday? When does Christmas come up? When my sister, it was every holiday, right? Every holiday, she would pour stuff on them. And you would think, naturally, well, gratitude would pour forth, but it wasn't gratitude. It was greed. And, you know, that troubled me. I thought, you know, that, that, that's troublesome to me, that there's greed in their hearts. But uh, more so, I found that I was troubled that they didn't know how to cover it up, <laughs> right? You know, that they weren't socially skilled enough yet to, you know, just pretend that you're, you're thankful, Right? And as they've grown, they've matured, meaning they can cover it up better. In other words, they're a lot more like me. <laughs> Still greedy, but they know how to cover it up. See, in the whole catalog of sins, we, we, can, we can laugh a little bit about greed. Greed isn't that bad, right? Actually, in some circles, greed is commended. Remember uh, Gordon Gekko? Right, Those of you who are a little older, remember the movie Wall Street? Uh, Michael Douglas played a character. Who's was on Wall Street, he has a famous quote, greed is good. Oh, I'm going to actually give you the whole quote in context. He said this. He said, greed for lack of a better word is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge has marked the upward surge of mankind. Greed is good. Of course, um, Gordon Gecko's is a fictional character, but that philosophy really runs deep in our country. Another quote for you from John Foreman, lead singer for Switchfoot, he said this, Greed, envy, sloth, pride, and gluttony, these are not vices anymore. No, these are marketing tools. Lust is our way of life. Envy is just a nudge toward another sale. Even in our relationships, we consume each other, each of us looking for what we can get out of the other. That's greed. Now, our culture, we don't consider it really that bad, but realize greed is actually anti-God. Because God is not greedy. God doesn't grasp and take. God gives. That's the very nature of the character or the personality of God is that God gives. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave. And he didn't give a little. He gave a lot. He gave what was most precious to him. God gave his only, his unique son. But whoever just believes, who reaches out in faith and just receives that gift can have everlasting life and not perish. God gives. Greed is the opposite of God. In fact, uh, the biblical word for greed in in the New Testament in Greek means uh, literally to have more. Greed is being fundamentally discontent with what God has provided and reaching out and grasping for more. It's fundamentally being discontent with what you have and saying, I must have more. If life is going to be full and rich and satisfying, I must have more than what God has in fact given me. And so you reach out and you grasp more. That is anti-God. That's not what God is like. But when we receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything changes, right? Right? Sir Frederick Catherwood, a British politician, he's retired, he's actually son-in-law of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote this, greed is the logical result of the belief that there is no life after death. We grab what we can, while we can, however we can, and then we hold on to it really hard. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's all changed, right? Your, your, your entire concept of reality has changed because This life is not all that there is. In fact, the best is yet to come, and the best will last so much longer and be so much greater, so you don't have to grasp in the here and now. You have hope. You have confidence. You have now been enriched in Jesus Christ, and you will be enriched forever, and so you cannot grasp any longer. You can hold with an open hand, and you can give, and you can give, and you can give. You can, in other words, be like God. That's what God is like. God loves to give. The gospel in our lives changes everything about us and everything about our lives. And it makes us like God, not grasping, but but giving. So why do I think that this passage is uh, not ultimately about lawsuits, but about greed? Well, let me give you a little background. First, the matter that Paul is discussing in 1 Corinthians 6 is civil, not criminal. Okay, keep that in mind. It's a civil issue, not criminal. All the language that he is using is the technical language from the civil law courts. Keep that in mind. Second, the civil courts were corrupt throughout the Roman Empire, but especially in Corinth. Cicero once wrote, the courts will never convict any man, however guilty, if only he has money. Another first century writer, Dio Chrysostom said, in Corinth there are lawyers innumerable perverting justice. Second century writer said this the judges are gowned vultures. The judges are corrupt, they are for sale. The juries are corrupt, they are only populated by the wealthy. The poor can't serve on the juries. The lawyers are for show. In fact, these lawsuits, sometimes very trivial lawsuits, will be brought by the rich against the poor or by the rich against one another to create drama. It was a show, it was entertainment displaying rhetorical skill. That's what's happening in the law courts in Corinth. Petronius uh, wrote a a novel called Satyricon, and he said this, of what avail are laws to be where money rules alone, and the poor suitor can never succeed. A lawsuit is nothing more than a public auction. So realize that the poor could not sue the rich. The, the weak and vulnerable could not sue the powerful. Those lawsuits wouldn't be allowed in court. So what's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is not that the poor are going to the courts to seek out justice in the courts. That is not what's transpiring. Okay, so the civil courts were corrupt. And this is what James is addressing in James chapter 2 as well, where he says, Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into the court? Okay, that's the culture of the day. The courts are also public. This is a public forum in which the wealthy and the powerful are going after the poor and the vulnerable. Let me help you visualize this. This is a drawing of the city of ancient Corinth. On the right-hand side, you see the amphitheater just to the left, and above it is the theater. On the left-hand side of the drawing is the Agora. That's the open marketplace This is where business was transacted. This is where people met socially. You'll see on that far left side a a long roof line. That's uh, where the shops were. People would come there to purchase things, to eat food, to gather and have a picnic, to converse. This is the most public area of the entire city. And you'll see a, a line of buildings right through the middle. In the middle of that line of buildings is the Bema seat. That's where judgment occurred. This is where Paul appeared. Any legal transactions happen right there in the very middle of the city. There is no more public place in the entire city than the very middle of the marketplace. So what's happening here is that Christians are harming Christians in corrupt public courts. If a Christian wanted justice, the civil court is the last place a Christian would go. So the very fact that they have lawsuits demonstrates that they're not seeking justice. They're seeking greater power, greater money, greater prestige. So what's happening here is the wealthy and powerful within the church are oppressing the poor within the church. Or possibly the wealthy in the church are going after one another just to gain more status. And they're doing it right out in the public square, in front of the entire world, for everyone to watch. It is, Paul says, a disgrace. Okay, it's a shame. So the fundamental issue Paul is addressing is greed. Lawsuits being a pretext for greed. So how do we relate that to our modern context? How how are we going to apply this? Let me give you a couple thoughts. First, our legal system is fundamentally sound. It's not perfect. I I got that. But it is fundamentally sound. And where corruption occurs, there are also laws so that we can address that. I also acknowledge that I think the, the rights of Christians are being eroded, certainly through the legal system. And I think as a result, we have an obligation as Christians to, to fight back against that, but, but we can, because we live in a nation that protects free speech, and we can push back. That. But in other words, our system is not like Corinth, and it's not like other nations around us. It is fundamentally a good system. Okay, that's a distinction between what's happening in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6, and what happens today. Okay, second thing to observe is the church, even though we have a fundamentally sound legal system, the church should still try to settle matters privately. That is civil matters. We're not talking about criminal matters, right? But when there's a conflict among believers, this is a family, and the ideal scenario is that we solve it within the family. Now, that being said, I do not think that Paul would rule out Christians using the court to get justice. Not for greed, but for justice. You remember, the context culturally is so very different. I, I, I feel very confident that Paul would not resist Christians becoming lawyers or judges. I don't see Paul telling uh, sarcastic lawyer jokes or being down. It's a very different system, right? It's very different. And so when a Christian needs to, within a just system, in a, a relatively just nation to use the law courts, I don't, I don't think that that's what 1 Corinthians 6 is talking about. And I think a lot of times it's taught that way and it's misapplied. It's taken out of context. Okay? But my point is this. For justice, not for greed. Okay, To pursue justice, not to pursue greed. Because I will tell you, I've seen even Christians use our legal system for greed. In particular, in cases where inheritance is in view. I've seen Christian families tear themselves apart. I've seen siblings... Enter into lawsuits with one another, knowing that at the end of the lawsuits they will never speak to one another again, but they would rather have a greater share of the inheritance than just walk away from that and say, I would rather have my family intact. I have seen that happen. Sometimes they're pursuing justice, but a lot of times, even within Christian families, it's about greed. And they'd rather have more than keep the family intact. And that is really the fundamental issue that Paul is addressing. It's greed. It is that desire to have more to take. So the question that I want us to look at this morning is this, how do we overcome greed first within the church, but then also just within ourselves, in our own hearts? And how do we overcome greed within ourselves and within the church? Okay? I'm going to give you four thoughts. First is this, first we confront it, we don't ignore it. Look at me in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians and verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. You recall that the issue in this section that we've just entered into, beginning in chapter 5, is that there are sins inside the church that the church has been unwilling to confront. The first one we looked at was uh, incest in chapter 5. This is the second one. It's greed in the church. Third one will be at the end of chapter 6. It has to do with immorality. In each of the cases, there's sin and the church won't confront it. And it would seem that at least in two of the three, the reason the church won't confront the sin is because it's a sin committed by somebody wealthy and powerful. Maybe somebody who's paying the bills. And they don't want to offend that person And drive that person away because that person not only provides money but provides elevated status for this Christian community and so they don't confront the sin that is the sin of showing partiality. But God is not a respecter of persons, is he? Again, this is the issue that James was confronting. He said, a, a rich man comes into your midst and you say, Oh, come in, welcome. We're so glad really, literally so glad that you are here with your money. Come in to our midst, and here, here's a great seat. Sit right here in the prominent place. And the poor man walks in, you say, I got a spot for you right here. See my feet? Sit right there at my feet. He says, You have become judges with evil motives. Why? Because in the church there is no status. We are all one in Christ. You don't gain gain status or position, power or authority based upon your status in the world or your wealth. Because we are all laid low at the foot of the cross. We are all sinners and perhaps God has given you wealth or status. Why? So that you can invest in the kingdom of God. Last week, Friday actually, it was just Friday, I was driving across campus and I, every time I go across campus, I have kind of the same thought. And, and hear me well, I, man, I love Texas A&M, right, gig em. whoop, class of 87, love A&M, I love Texas A&M. But when I drive across campus and I look at these buildings, these huge buildings, and there's always a name on the side of the building. And I, I can't help but think, I hope that is not the only legacy of this man or this woman or this couple. I hope that bricks and mortar is not the only legacy they have left behind. Because you know what? Someday there will be no Texas a University. And, and don't hiss at that. Okay, that's okay. Because someday there will just be the kingdom of God. You know, someday there will not even be a Grace Bible Church. There will just be the body of Christ. Right? There will just be the body of Christ. And so we can't show partiality in the church based upon status or wealth or anything else. In other words, when you come in, it doesn't matter if you give a lot or you give a little. That's between you and the Lord. And you can't buy position because you give a lot. And I don't want to know if you give a lot or a little. And I don't keep track of that and I don't pay attention to that because I want to speak the same to everyone. It's just the word of God equally applied to all. And if you bring in lots of money, you don't get a special seat. and You don't get to put your name on that seat. You know, that's why it's wonderful we have so many students. You guys just keep coming in and you rotate through the years. And you don't know where people sit, so you take their seats. Awesome. You know, you can do that because you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Take their seats. And you who are here year after year after year, don't complain. You don't own that seat. Right? You don't own that seat. You didn't buy that seat. You're here because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And Paul is confronting the church because they haven't confronted the issue of greed. They haven't confronted it in large part because they're showing partiality. We must confront the issue. Read with me in chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare? Do you dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts do you not know that we will judge the angels? How much more? The simple matters of this life. Paul says, you are competent. <laughs> you are responsible. You have the authority to deal with matters of sin in the church. Don't you realize that you will judge the world? What does that look, I, I don't look like? I, I don't know. I, wh- Apparently, we will sit with the great judge. Perhaps we will be his jury. And we will judge the world that has rejected God. We will judge the angels who have fallen and rejected God. We will have a place of authority. He says, you, you, you're competent. You are. Why? Because he says, you're, you're, you're the saints, you're not the unrighteous. He says, these are the two categories of people. And he's not saying that the unrighteous, that is those who have not believed, are as bad as they could possibly be. And you saints are absolutely perfect and holy and pure. That's not what he's saying. Because, in fact, there's a lot of sin in the midst of the Corinthian church. They're still saints because they have believed they've been set apart. And when they are set apart, they receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. And if they listen to the Holy Spirit, as we saw in chapter 3, they grow in maturity and they grow in wisdom because the Spirit is wise and the Spirit grants wisdom. And wisdom doesn't come with wealth and status, wisdom comes with, with humility with putting yourself low before God and listening. And one of the wisest people I've ever known is a woman who lived from paycheck to paycheck. She didn't have status in the world. She didn't have wealth in the world. But people continue to line up at her door to ask wisdom. Notice what Paul says in chapter 6, verse 4. He says, so if you have lawsuits dealing with matters of this life, Do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I think that verse should actually not be a question, but a command. I think it's better translated as a command. It should read like this. So if you have lawsuits dealing with matters of this life, appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church. One of the keys to interpreting the whole book of 1 Corinthians is to understand that Paul is exceptionally sarcastic with these people. He's just hammering them. Every time he can just kind of subtly get in a jab at him, he gets it in. What he's saying is this. You've got people in your church who couldn't sit on a, on a law court at the Bema seat in the Agora, in the marketplace. They couldn't sit there. Why? Because they don't have wealth and they don't have status. They couldn't sit there. You know what? Appoint them in your church. Appoint the, appoint the poor and the weak and the vulnerable. Why? Because they have the spirit of God. That means they have Wisdom. And you are responsible, church, to see sin cropping up and confront it and deal with it. Why? Because greed destroys the family. And we are a family. And when greed crops in, that desire, that longing to have more, then we will begin to take rather than to give. It'll destroy the family. And so, what about you? Are you greedy? What about me? Am I greedy? Oh, I confess. There have been many times in my life where I say, you know, I like shiny things. I I want that. I want a a new truck. I want an upgrade. I want want something new. What he has, I want that. I want that thing. I can begin to feel it emotionally. I feel it when it starts cropping up in my heart. I want that thing. Or someone is elevated to a status, they get a position or an opportunity. I say, you know, I could do that. I want that. That's greed. Christians need to understand and realize that we are vulnerable. We're vulnerable. Jesus said this, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Every form. I don't know why, but uh, this week the Lord just brought to my mind Ten Commandments. I just began thinking about the Ten Commandments. So I went back and I read the Ten Commandments. And what I realized as I was reading through the Ten Commandments is, is that in a sense, each of them is a form of greed. It's taking something from someone or it's not giving what someone deserves. Right? Taking worship away from God and giving it to another. Taking that day set aside for God to just stop and remember and worship. Taking that day and using it for self. Taking someone else's name or reputation. Taking their stuff. Taking a wife. It's taking. Taking truth. Taking what someone else deserves or not giving to someone what they deserve and they should have. All of that is a form of greed. Remember, greed is anti-God because who is God? God is one who gives. God gives and he gives and he gives. And church, we want to be like God. And so we confront it, whether it's in our own hearts or within our midst. Without partiality for ourselves or for others, we confront greed. Paul said in First Timothy chapter 6, "...those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction." For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See what Paul is saying? He's saying, this is devastating for you individual believers and it's devastating for the Christian community. Not that you are rich because there's no sin in being rich. The sin is in loving wealth. Right? And longing for wealth. Whether you have it or don't have it. That's what plunges men and women into ruin and destruction. I remember talking to a missionary about this one time. He was down in Central America, a really poor area. And, And as we were talking, I asked him what the issues were he was dealing with. And he said, one of the biggest issues that they dealt with was greed. I said, well, how can that be? Because everyone is so poor. And he said, well, you don't understand. Greed is a matter of the heart, Brian. And so it may be that where you live in your context, people are greedy for a second house. Here they're greedy for a second donkey. The object of the greed is irrelevant. The issue is the heart. And when we don't root out greed, it destroys us from the inside. Because as Jesus said, when man has an abundance, life doesn't consist of what he has. But life is made by what we give. So first, we confront greed. Second, we defend the vulnerable. Read with me in chapter 6 and verse 5. I say this to your shame, Paul writes. Is it so that there is not among you even one single wise person who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you even have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, you do this even to your brethren. Remember, who is, who is doing the wronging? Who's defrauding and who's being defrauded? This is not the rich trying to get justice in the court system. This is those with wealth and power oppressing the poor. So Paul is not saying to the poor, hey, just roll over and take it. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul would not say that to the poor. What he would say is, you defend the poor. Church, defend those who are vulnerable. So in other words, he's addressing the wealthy and the powerful. Let me paraphrase it for you like this. Paul's saying, for the sake of argument, let's say you rich man, you were genuinely wronged. Go ahead and be wrong then. You'll survive and the church will be better off. Now remember, Paul's very sarcastic in this book. The rich were not being wronged by the poor. The rich were taking advantage of the poor. Because they were greedy. So Paul's just saying, well, for the sake of argument, let's say you actually were genuinely wronged. <laughs> Roll over and take it. Okay? Why? For the good and the health of the body. But you weren't wronged. You weren't wronged. Shame on you, church, is what he's saying. Shame on you. Why? Shame on you that you have showed partiality to the rich and have not addressed and confronted sin. Shame on you that you haven't protected and guarded the vulnerable. Because one of the key markers of the health, of a Christian community is what do they do for those who are vulnerable what do they do for those who cannot protect themselves it's a key marker of our spiritual health I want you to keep your place here in 1 Corinthians 6 turn back to the book of Ezekiel chapter 34 Ezekiel chapter 34 uh, if you don't know where Ezekiel is it's about right in the middle of your Bible right, J- right after Jeremiah page 875 875 There you go. That help? Okay. Ezekiel 34. Let's read in verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search out for my sheep and seek them out. Now, as an aside, I think this is one of the key passages that Jesus had in mind where he talked about himself as the good shepherd in John chapter 10. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, So I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and a gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel." I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. So Ezekiel is writing to a group of people who are in exile. Why are they in exile? Because they're spiritual leaders, those with power and those with money had not led them into righteousness. They had, in fact, uh, uh, oppressed them and taken from them. And so God says, now I'm going to step in because I am ultimately the shepherd. My under-shepherds have led you astray and destroyed you. And so I will step in and I will regather my flock and I will protect and I will care for my flock. I will guard the vulnerable. But you who have trampled on them, you will be judged. Verse 17, as for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. Is it too slight a thing for you that you should feed in the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pastures, or that you should drink of the clear waters that you must foul the rest with your feet? As for my flock, they must eat what you tread down with your feet and drink what you foul with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them. Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you push with the side and with the shoulder and thrust it all the weak with your horns until you have scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will deliver my flock and they will no longer be a prey and I will judge between one sheep and another. He says, for those of you who have some measure of, of status, power and wealth, one of the markers of your maturity is, do you care for those who cannot care for themselves? And one of the key markers of the health of any individual or any church is, do you care for those who cannot care for your, themselves? Do you give to those who can give you absolutely nothing in return? As Jesus said, give and give and give, expecting nothing in return. One of the ways that we root out greed in, in ourselves a, a, as a church, but also individually So we pay attention to those in our midst, in our community, who can't care for themselves. Third, we exalt the gospel. We overcome greed in ourselves, overcome greed in our church, when we put the gospel first. So I have a question for you this morning. What really gets you riled up? what, 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 What frustrates you or what stirs up your anger? Right, we're, we're in an election cycle right now. We're in November. Elections are about to occur. I mean, is it politics? You see all these ads going back and forth and people lying about each other back and forth, or is it, you know, the system in general? There's so much corruption, it would seem, and greed and, and foolish spending. Does all the, is that all just kind of rile you up? I mean, I, I, it bugs me. I've got to turn off the news sometimes, right, and say, let me take a hiatus from all of this. Or is it just the little things? Is your anger kind of right at the surface and somebody pulls in front of you on the road and ah, you just boom, explode. Yeah, get out of my way, right? I mean, is that, are you just right there? What makes you really just frustrated? I knew that I had met uh, the right woman for me when I learned what made my wife angry. What makes my wife angry is when Christians don't care about the lost. That really gets my wife riled up. A lot of things just roll off her. But I think probably being raised as she was when she sees Christians who don't care about people who have never heard the gospel and don't know Jesus. Oh, man. (laughs) That really frustrates her. See, men and women, there is nothing more valuable that we possess than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we put the gospel of Jesus Christ first in our lives, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating. This is not hyperbole. When we put the gospel absolutely first in our lives, there's nothing more important in our lives. Nothing that we possess, no relationship, nothing. But our relationship with Jesus Christ and making him known to those who don't know him. When that becomes the absolute most important thing to us, then you know what? When we're wrong, there are things that are just going to roll off. We're going to say, I can forgive. Why? Because I have Jesus and you need Jesus and you don't have Jesus. Jesus. When Jesus Christ is absolutely the most important thing in our lives, then we will be be able not to grasp or feel the need to take from others, but to give and to give and to give and to give because we have Jesus and we are rich. No exaggeration. Jesus Christ, the gospel, must be absolutely first and foremost in our lives. And then everything else will be ordered around around the gospel and we will live differently. We'll be a different community because we love Jesus most. Not as much as, but most. And we long to see those who don't know Jesus come into a relationship with Jesus. And that's more important than anything else. And we will sacrifice and we will serve and we will even forgive wrongs that are done to us. Because people need to know Jesus. And there's nothing more important. Have I made my point? There's nothing more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love how Paul said it. Titus chapter 2, he said, Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. That, that phrase is, is rich in imagery. The word for adorn is the word from which we get cosmetics. He's saying, put a beautiful face on the gospel. The gospel itself is already beautiful, but you are the face of the gospel. You make the gospel appealing to those around you. Because they can't see God, but they can see you. So how do we do that? How do we adorn The gospel. Jesus said it like this in John 13. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What's the problem in Corinth? You got some people who love status and wealth and stuff much, much more than they love the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they're grabbing and grasping and taking. And there's division and conflict in the church and they don't address sin. It's just a mess. Why? They don't love Jesus. And they don't love one another when we love one another and we serve one another and we sacrifice for one another and you know what? We forgive one another. People look in and they say, that's different. I want some of that. What is that? Can I be a part of that? And their hearts open to the gospel. Okay? It's what Jesus prayed for the church, John chapter 17. That they may all be one even as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world will know. So that the world will know. The world will believe that you sent me and the world will believe that they can have life only in me because you have come together as one just as Father, Son, and Spirit are one. No grasping. No clamoring. No trying to elevate one over the other within Father, Son, and Spirit. How do we overcome our greed within ourselves and our church? Put the gospel first. Finally, we give freely. Turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 8. 2 Corinthians, chapter 8. Verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Now, I want you to observe. How is the grace of God expressed through these churches in Macedonia? How is it that they experience the grace of God? Paul says... Through suffering, okay, that's not what I expected. The grace of God has been given to the churches in Macedonia that, in a great ordeal of affliction, of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Paul saying the grace of God, which is the riches of Christ, was evidenced in their suffering. And in their poverty, which they turned around as an opportunity for generosity. Not rich people. Verse 3. For I testify that according to their ability, actually beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, not coerced, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us By the will of God. that is, Boy, that is a a rich package of verses right there. God's grace is expressed through their suffering. In the midst of their suffering, which included deep poverty, they said, please, please, please let us give to those other churches that don't have much at all and they are in need. There's a famine in Judea. Let us give. And they gave out of their poverty, beyond their ability, and they gave joyfully of their own accord. And they gave not only of their wealth, but they, they gave themselves. That's generosity. Give. Give. How do we overcome greed, that desire to have more? We just start giving things away. Okay? If we're clinging to it, it owns us. We release it. We're enriched. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12. Sell your possessions, give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where do you want your heart? This is fundamentally an issue of the heart, not an issue of, of your status, or your wealth, but an issue of your heart. This summer I, I witnessed a really beautiful thing between my kids. Uh, my son was at basketball camp and my daughter had earned a bunch of money doing different things. She's good. At, she likes to save her money. But she also loves to give. And so she took out of the money that she had earned from projects she had done. And she went up to my son's basketball camp. And they had stuff laid out on the table that the campers could buy. And she went down the table and bought him everything. I mean, she spent a lot of her money to give. It was a beautiful thing. And, you know, he was blessed and he was happy. But to see the just the thrill in her heart to give. And I've seen that growing in her, this desire, this longing, and this fulfillment in giving. One wonderful thing for me as a father to see that amongst my children, and that's what God says. He looks down upon us as a family, and he says, no, no, don't grasp and take, give. Why? Because that's what I'm like. That's what I'm like. So one application point, For you this week, just give something away. (laughs) Give something away, preferably to somebody who can't return the favor. You don't need them to return the favor. You don't want them to return the favor. Just give. Okay, give, expecting nothing in return. And as you give, I want you to just kind of monitor your own heart. What happens inside of you as you give, expecting nothing in return? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have shown us the way that you've demonstrated this pathway for us by giving what was most precious to you, your only son. Jesus, I thank you that you have also shown us the way by giving your life, by suffering on our behalf and sacrificing for us and giving. I pray, Father, that you would grow within us hearts that love to give so that the world can look in and they can see our love for one another, our generosity toward them, they would be drawn to your Son Jesus Christ, and have life in him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you, have a great week, giving stuff away. See you next week.